Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And we are ruining a giant televised political spectacle that just happened, and we have on one of our favorite guests of all time to do it. Yes, we are so excited to welcome back to the show, friend of the show, Caitlin Bird. Welcome, Caitlin. Hey, hi. As we try to get to the bottom of the bizarre performance art spectacle that was the installation of a speaker to the house. (laughs) Yes, a historically protracted election. Uh, So who better to join us than Caitlin, our political expert? Before we jump into talking all about the last few days of absolute circus on the House floor and what it all means, first we got to check in. I need to know how everyone's doing and what are you drinking? Caitlin, you go first. I am doing okay. Um, Despite having to live through, like, I think it was like 24 hours they like summed it all up, like of of nothing but speaker roll calls because the House can only... (laughs) can only do two things. It can only vote for speaker or adjourn. There's nothing else that they can do, even though there's no rules. They can't, there's no committees. There's, I, we lived through the longest period of time without the House existing as an organ of government in modern history. Oh my God. Oh so, my God. To handle that, I am drinking a little hot toddy tea spiked with uh, Grand Marnier. Nice. How about you, Rebecca? I'm doing great. I have not really had to return to my day job since like the holiday vacation because I do part-time tutoring and it's very seasonal and like the influx of spring students, like we're just not quite at the point in the school year where the teachers are giving the progress reports and being like, "Uh, you might want to get him a tutor. Uh, So (laughs) that will come soon. But right now I've had more time to like get things done around the house and work on creative projects. And it's been really nice. So I'm trying to enjoy that. Um, I'm drinking lemon lime soda because I wasn't sure if you guys would be drinking because we're recording a little early. But now that I know Caitlin's drinking, I definitely will pour something into this. I just have to decide what. Well, while Rebecca is deciding what she's going to pour into her lemon lime soda, it is only the afternoon on the West Coast. So I cannot be drinking. I'm drinking tea. Uh, I'm getting ready for a show that's opening at Pitzer Art Galleries for our LA listeners in two weeks, just a little under three weeks. And honestly, the amount of shit that has to get done in the next 20 days is a lot of shit. So I cannot be even having a little drink right now. I need my full faculties. Um, And other than that, you know, I'm just being a parent in the ongoing uh, having my kid watch 80s movies thing. We watched Terminator for the first time and uh, he really dug it. That's great. That gives me a lot of like faith in the future. And I just dove into the phone during the sex scene. And I <laughs> just, just pretended like you weren't there. So he yeah, just pretend, you pretend there. I was like, like yeah. the cat when cats hide their head and they think their whole bodies are hidden. Yeah, that was exactly what I did. Yeah. And by sex scene, you mean the scene that we watched in high school at the hunk fest sleepover <laughs> party, right? 
that was one of our, uh, I, I just broke my, <laughs> we, we watched clips of our favorite movies with our favorite hot guys of the era. And I came across time for you, Sarah Connor, it was definitely a key moment that we didn't want to leave out. Wow. I have a question for you wow. too. What yes. do you think would go well in lemon lime soda? I have ancho reyes, ancho chili liqueur. There's a bottle of Aperol. These are things that were within arm's reach. Uh, there's also tequila. Could just I think tequila. There. You go straight really? to tequila. I, I mean, I think so. I feel like Caitlin is drinking Grand Marnier, you know? It's, it's kind of refined. <laughs> you want to nice match. I understand. It, was, it was the only liqueur I had in, in my house. <laughs> I, we're, not, we're not a drinking house. It was that or I, I had to drink wine and I realized I'd already made, put on the kettle and, and made myself tea. And I was like, okay, I've got to spike this tea. What's, what's the thing that can work with, with tea? Very resourceful. I mean, it was well-timed. It, it does go well together. It's very lightly spiked with honey and Grand Marnier. So... That sounds delicious. Uh, I'm going with the um, ancho chili liqueur. I figure give it a little kick, a little spice. All right. Well, speaking of spicy. <laughs> oh, I think I put too much. Oh, no. But speaking of spicy, I think it's time to get to the least spicy man who's ever been Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like the opposite of spice. It's even worse because it's not even like something else delicious like like cream or something like that it's just bland like just a raw bland. potato <laughs> raw potato is like a really apt description of kevin mccarthy's personality i think a raw potato could have done it in five votes so as caitlin just mentioned there is no American or person living who was alive the last time this happened. Well, it was 100 years ago. There are people living who are over 100 years old. There's no one who remembers. There's no living memory of the last speaker vote that went to multiple ballots. Yes. All right. All right. Can I contextualize it a little bit? Yes. Because I think this is interesting. What we're talking about is Kevin McCarthy being elected Speaker of the House. And uh, usually that takes one round of voting. The last time in American history that it took more than one round of voting was 1923. It took nine rounds of voting. Very contentious speaker battle. Prior to that, every other instance where it took more than one round of voting was before the Civil War. The party system has changed over time. Things were different. It, it was more inclined to happen in that era. But also, there was a looming civil war. <laughs> the, the two, yeah, most recent spaces before the civil war, that was 1856 and 1859, in which there were two protracted speaker battles. There's only four instances in U.S. history that went longer than this past one. It took 15 rounds to elect McCarthy. The next longest one would be I think 22 rounds. So I was not 100% sure we weren't going to get there to the 22 rounds, but we didn't. We landed at fifth longest speaker election in American history. What's actually interesting to me is that I'm a Civil War nerd, famously. Um, I, I, I love the political history. I don't care about the military history. People be like, oh, what happened on day two of Fredericksburg or some shit? I don't give a fuck. Who cares? Right. Um, but... <laughs> What I do care about is the political history. And so I've read Battle Cry of Freedom. And that's actually when I, I knew 
before we got to the speaker vote, what the longest vote was and when it happened because of that book. That is 133 ballots in 1855 to 56. It took two months. It required like all sorts of crazy shenanigans. There were four political parties at the time. Many of the people in the, the party that won, the, co the coalition that won were not even nominally Republicans, but ended up forging into the Republican party because this was like, the second cycle anyone had ever run as a Republican or something like that. And it was December 55 into uh, February <laughs> 1856. And uh, it ultimately ended with Nathaniel Banks of the Republican Party becoming speaker. And that was kind of like one of the seminal moments. And then the other one, 1859, was uh, who would be John Sherman, the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, was supposed to be speaker. And the Democratic Party of previous South uh, fought really hard to keep him from being speaker. And uh, it was just some random dude named Pennington. And for some reason, the next cycle, no one cared. Uh, I think, oh, what was it? 1861. Oh, it was 18. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Things yeah. were resolved outside the, the house we're, chamber. We're, uh... <laughs> Yeah, let's set the clock for two years, guys. <laughs> Start packing up those guns. All okay. Right, so let's talk about this spectacle that we just saw. Uh, I don't think yes. it's going to compare to that 18, what was it, 1856? 133 votes. But um, we did see some hints. We saw some little, little uh, moments that were reminiscent of that level of contentiousness. Uh, I think what we saw a lot more of, though, was flat-out trolling. I don't know how much that, although it wouldn't have been called it at the time, I don't know how much that sort of like being deliberately provocative for attention has been a thing in the past. I mean, there are different versions of it, but you don't have the immediate everybody has access to social media and everybody's waiting to amplify whatever news is coming through that social media. Like, I feel like everything is framed. We were talking about this with um, January 6th last week, that way that moments of the committee meetings were crafted to be tweeted and shared. I think that there's something to the fact that, there, that this is the first speaker vote that went to multiple balance since the invention of radio well noted there was no radio companies at the time of that 1923 i think the first one was started in 1925 so there there was no mass dissemination of our politics this way it was still being reported and that slowness of you know negotiating between people and we do the ballots and the assumption that like congress doesn't need to get started day one because who's gonna be keeping track of this shit like Okay, they and they ended up electing the person who they elected twice before. So this was really this really was a negotiation about getting rule changes and not like an extortion to take over the country like it is with this one. Whereas like we saw it all happen in real time and everyone saw it all at the same time. We were all watching. Yeah, this one the those who opposed McCarthy, the Republicans in the House who were opposed to McCarthy, there were about there were twenty of them. Um, most of them claimed it was about rule changes that they wanted. And McCarthy, he started the game by, like, conceding everything to them. He was ready and willing to give them pretty much everything they wanted. But there were still these 20 staunch, like, we're not going to vote for him, at least for the first two days. 
And then he managed to chip away at that. Uh, but there were like five holdouts who were the real drivers of it and really like dragged it out to the end. Most notably like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert, uh, a few others. Um, what's his name? Matt Rosendale from, I forget what state, Montana. Or- yeah, Montana. So then wait a second, because actually, guys, I've, I've been so in the zone trying to get this show up that I didn't get to watch. So I'm like sitting here with popcorn like you guys are recapping this for me. So it's almost like the 20 Republicans who were holding out, they weren't holding out for the concessions which he made right off the bat. They were holding out as a performance. I mean, all of them were to some extent, some of them more than others. It was kind of a a complicated combination of hostage taking and performance, because once you once you start taking public hostages, like in a very broad and open space where like everyone can see you, that's naturally going to be performance. Um, The other thing is, is that there the Republican Party has basically the only meaningful thing that they have is performance, right? They don't really have policy. And so the entire act is to show that you hate the right people and you will make them submit to you. Do you think this is, this is partly because there was like no red wave? This is like, there is no red wave tantrum. So we have to have another tantrum. No, I think it honestly, this just gives them the lack of red wave gives them leverage. They knew that they had the numbers at that point to uh, hold McCarthy hostage. If McCarthy had more members, he could have afforded to let those 20 like, I don't know, have their tantrum, do whatever they wanted, and he would still have the votes. And he all he needed to do is basically tell them to vote present or, you know, gently gently poke and threaten because he would have a larger margin, but instead he actually ends up with like an extremely tight margin, which makes each one of them that much more important. Right. And gave them a stage, you know, because they knew that they, they could, they could, they could stop him with what five votes. Um, It's going to get tighter uh, next uh, month of late February, because Democrats are going to regain a seat. They only had 212 members. Uh, they will have 213 next month. Uh, one of their members passed away after the election um, in a, a 67 to 33 Biden district. Um, so the chances of Democrats keeping it is very high and it's going to make it even harder for McCarthy to hold on. Yeah, I mean, that was that's the trick of it is McCarthy had to have more than half of the votes that were cast. And for those who didn't follow it closely, Uh, Anyone who were to vote present, it would count as them not casting a vote, basically. So it would lower the threshold of number of votes uh, anyone would need in order to be elected. But even though over like the first 10 or 11 votes or something like that, um, (laughs) Hakeem Jeffries had more votes than Kevin McCarthy each time. It didn't matter. It had to be half of the total votes cast. So all you needed was this handful of Republicans consistently voting for somebody, anybody else, because you can say any name you want. You don't have to vote for one of the people officially nominated. I mean, it's like a perfect stage, like Caitlin said. It's a stage for people like Lauren Boebert, right? Who cares what she even wants? She wants to have a moment in the limelight, make it all about her, because she can is, is uh, she the one who on the document is the bargain basement Sarah Palin? 
Yeah, I <laughs> I was been watching a lot of Bobert because she's been on the cable news or like they've been showing her talking to oh. the press. And, you know, she's been making some speeches from the House floor and I've been trying to put my finger on what it is about her presentation and her manner. And I realized she is doing this Sarah Palin cosplay. So then I wanted to break down, like, what is it? What are the elements of Sarah Palin cosplay? Other than, like, okay, I'm a brunette with little glasses and I'm at this kind of upper Midwestern accent. She's got all those things going on. But um, there's this quality of bitchiness that's inherent to it. And I, I chose the phrase bargain basement Sarah Palin deliberately because Sarah Palin's, like, already on sale you know she's not <laughs> she's not the top tier brand of of anything anyone's buying and this is like the knockoff version of that and I'm just kind of fascinated by that performance and who it might resonate with and it's so weird because Bobert as we all know won her district by like seven votes so she is she thinking about how this will play in the next general? Is she thinking no one will care? Is she only thinking about the primary? Like, I I don't know, and I I don't suppose it's probably productive to try to get inside her mind, but it was an opportunity for attention, and this is where I think we're seeing the next evolution of Trumpism, because I think it's fair to say Trump, especially, and we'll get into this in a second. It, his whole role in this whole affair just kind of underlined how irrelevant he is becoming if he isn't already there. But the next evolution of this is people just following his model, making it all about themselves. It's not about policy. It's not about house rules. It's not about Kevin McCarthy as an individual. It's not. It's an opportunity to have the cameras on you. And so you take it. It's, it's just all about attention. And we're in an attention economy. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the fact that, like, there's no policy in the Republican Party, I think you can chalk that up to, um, it's kind of like, this reference is going to be too young. Okay, but it's fine. I'm, I'm going to go with it. It's, it's, it's a, dig, it's digivolving. You know, Sarah Palin was the first one, that first, like, basic digivolve, right. and now it, it evolved into <laughs> Trump, and now it's, it's taking on a new evolutionary form. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I like the analogy. Yeah, that works but, for me. But it's also, I mean, they're, they're kind of fighting over less and less. And what I find really odd is that the non whatever, you know, Patriot Front or whatever they are, the, the Republicans who aren't that, like, where's the smoke filled room and negotiation and like where is any it's like gone it's gone like all of that seems just like forever eternally gone I mean a lot of it comes down to the individual who is vying for or occupying the role of speaker and their savvy their skill their ability to whip their caucus into shape into line like McCarthy has none of that. He never has. He's just like a bar of soap. <laughs> he's just there. Like he's affable. Like people generally don't seem to object to him as a person. And like he doesn't stand for anything, which is weird to say because the Republican Party doesn't stand for anything. But they do have like positions in terms of like 
the like culture wars and grievance. They have certain positions of like the Tea Party or the Freedom Caucus or being a def- you know a defense hawk or whatever their little Republican stances are, pro big business, and he doesn't even have that. McCarthy's just like his whole like a raison d'être, like his whole aim in life is just to be speaker for no reason except that he seems to want it. He removed his name from consideration in the last speaker vote where they ended up choosing Paul Ryan because um, it big right. for the same reason. Like people just were not there for him. They were not going to ride for him. But this has happened the last two speakers for the Republicans, right? Like mm-hmm. Democrats have Nancy Pelosi, who's the most effective legislator in American history. Um, she doesn't, she's never going to get that credit. She's never going to get a building named after her, even though she very obviously should. Um, because uh, she's a woman. But the point is... is (laughs) Correct, correct, correct. Exactly. The point is that she whips her caucus. She's never lost a floor vote. She's one of the only legislators in history never to lose a floor vote and always know where her votes are and always know how she's going to get them. Um, Where, you know, McCarthy can't even win a speaker vote because he has no natural base. There's no group of people who's like, we are McCarthy or bust. We believe in his leadership. We are down for this ride. John Boehner had the same problem. He was constantly attacked by his right flank. He was able to become speaker because of this huge Tea Party wave. And then he spent almost all of his time trying to hold off the people who had gotten elected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then Paul Ryan, so, yeah, same thing. So then, okay, so the Republicans have nothing left but their grotesque performance because they stand for nothing and they have no person who even pretends like they stand for something. So could you give me some of the details of the grotesque? Like I heard Matt Gates was doing some, you know, stuff. There's some action on the floor. Can I get like the peak Republican just kind of grossness during this process? Matt Gates would embody that for sure. <laughs> like it seemed like he was having the time of his life. First of all, he he pulled stunts that I recently, I only learned about this today. He wrote a letter to the um, Capitol architect calling McCarthy a squatter for setting up shop in the speaker's office when he hadn't yet been elected speaker. He was trying to get McCarthy booted out of the speaker's office. He also did shit like nominating Trump, like officially nominating Trump when they were doing their nominating speeches during one of the rounds of voting. A totally unserious thing, you know? At one point, I did see that he said, if this happens, I'm resigning. And I'm like, oh, is he in legal trouble? Is this going to be his big performance? Because he's about to actually, because he knows the indictments are coming. So that's how he's going to. That would be really funny. Um, One of the best moments was Matt Rosendale of Montana I don't remember which round of voting it was, but it was nearer to the end. Uh, when they got to him, because he's near the end, he's R, uh, he goes, I vote for Kevin Hearn. Like he had this protracted pause while he waited for everyone to expect him to say McCarthy. And then there was this audible groan from everyone in the house. It, it's very trolling. They're just like trying to get a rise out of people just for the lulls. I would like to uh, bring up something, uh, which I, I might be the only one who can. The first, like, six rounds of voting, six or seven, where they kept nominating Byron Donalds of Florida as the alternative yes. to McCarthy. And the the just gross disingenuousness 
of saying that they could elect the first black speaker. <laughs> like, like uh, were you keeping count of the number of times they patted themselves on the back? They were so fucking proud of themselves for that. And like almost everybody who did his nominating speech was like, he's a good person and black. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was just wow. like some version wow. of like, look at this wow. black one. <laughs> we have yeah. one thing. <laughs> At one point in one, I think it was uh, late when he switched back to McCarthy, that someone legitimately, after he cast his vote for McCarthy, patted his head. And I was like, I... Oh, my God. Oh, you know what, though? (laughs) He's made that choice. You know what? He's made that choice. That's what's going to happen. You know, that's... Oh, oh, that that is super... And then finally, I want to bring up somebody who in the nominating speech for McCarthy brought up the fact that uh, Frederick Douglass would have been a Republican. And I was like, I need to throw things at you. Like literally all of Twitter, like everyone black guys was like, this is unacceptable. Like find that man and punch him in the throat. Like we were all just so over it. So I I think like that level of performance too, that just kind of is just, it's very gross and slimy and very part of that like culture war aspect. And at one point they had um, uh, John James, I think, uh, do a nominating speech for McCarthy and talk about, you know, um, how uh, Democrats stood for slavery. And I just had a whole, everyone just had a moment where we were all like, Go get your 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 edges lined up. Like, go find <laughs> like stop talking. <laughs> wow. Now, what about the violence? Okay, so this is the the culmination of it, right? You had three days of this spectacle of the spectacle of this trolling of people showing their ass yeah. of all of this kind of grossness. You have all and, of it, and and McCarthy, you know, working his cock is after his fashion. The the potato bar of soap yeah, working. Exactly. <laughs> I, like, I can't, I just can't get over his strategy. Like that either he didn't care or he thought it would be good for him to just publicly be seen being rejected by his own caucus 12 times, 13 times. And he's like sort of goofy smiling through the whole fucking thing. The whole time he's just smiling as if he's winning every time. And you're like, either this guy is wow. like playing the most sophisticated game I've ever seen, or he is actually a colossal idiot, which okay. he clearly is. I Yeah, I think that that's something we've been seeing cycles of, like four-dimensional chess or total fucking idiot. Always, it's total fucking it's idiot. It's total Always. fucking idiot. But that goofy kind of cheerful demeanor broke at one moment which was on the 14th vote the second to last vote matt gates and this is important right because they call the role alphabetically by last name but if a member misses or chooses not to vote when their name is called they have an opportunity at the end anyone can change their vote and people who didn't vote get called again so when matt gates was called in the 14th round he didn't answer And this was the one that they went into, like, they thought they had it. McCarthy thought he had it. All the signals, he he was, like, beaming with it. They were like, this is over. And um, it's 10 at night. Everybody's come back. It's like, we are done. (laughs) Yeah, this is finally going to be over. Matt Gaetz doesn't vote. He waits to the end, ever the showman. Now, the math at that point added up so that McCarthy could not win 
with an additional present vote. He needed Gates to vote for McCarthy. He needed him to say McCarthy. And um, he votes present. This was the moment when McCarthy lost his cool, affable, goofball demeanor and like made a beeline up the aisle to Matt Gates, and they were like having at it, pointing at each other. It got really heated. Uh, one of the members of Congress, you'll have to forgive me. I, you guys, Mike Rogers of Alabama. Mike Rogers. He was the one that got restrained, right, <laughs> by by a oh colleague. Yeah, and all the news were like, he lunged at Matt Gates. He didn't really lunge at him, but he obviously was saying some heated words, and the person near him felt it necessary to pull him back. It was like real, real chaotic, and and real fun to watch. Quite frankly, <laughs> it, felt, it felt like a, uh, an opportunity. It felt like we were in the Italian Parliament for a second, right? right? Yeah, and it had <laughs> nothing like chaos and vibes. Out there. Yeah, like the the past like a few nomination speeches for the past couple rounds, there started to be like heckling during them and loud crowd reactions. I mean, it, it was great drama. There's some amazing photos that came out of it. Great photos of that sort of physical moment. Um, this great photo of Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, trying yeah. to give... I cannot believe this is the first time hearing her name as we're describing this. Like, Bobert's right up there. We're talking about big trolling performers. I'm only hearing about Marjorie Taylor Greene now. Yeah, she was with Kevin from the start. And I'm still mm. really curious to know... What she got her he concession early, her. and he went and he courted her because he knew he needed her. He had been courting certain votes. He just had a bunch of holdouts who hated his guts and didn't care. But um, the only time she got upset during this entire thing was when she heard that Freedom Caucus members went to go lobby for stuff to get stuff out, more concessions out of Kevin um, right. McCarthy. And uh, she got on the camera and got super mad that no one asked for anything for her. And I was like, well, <laughs> that's not like, how you that works. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is all for yourselves. Like, it's yeah. kind of funny the amount of people who, uh, throughout the process, the amount of McCarthy Republicans, I don't even want to give them that much because they weren't really aligned with McCarthy. They just didn't want to continue having this fight. And overwhelmingly, they'd be like, all these people just simping for attention and doing all this stuff and, and getting all this thing and being so disruptive. And I was like, you asked for, like, this is literally why you guys got elected. You guys said that you were there to disrupt the establishment. Now you're the establishment and you are being disrupted <laughs> at all times because you don't want to actually govern. You're not there to govern. You're there to break things. You also supported Trump, who is the embodiment of just being disruptive for no fucking reason and being an attention whore. Sorry, attention sex worker, whatever. Um, <laughs> the thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was in this great photo, she's holding her phone. There's someone on the phone. It's DT. It's Donald Trump. And she's trying to give the phone to Rosendale, Matt Rosendale, who is has his hand up, like the talk to the hand gesture. He's like brushing it off. He's not going to take the phone from Marjorie Taylor Greene. What an iconic photo. Like, what a great moment. Also, just quick note about Matt Gates. The whole thing on the 14th vote was he had to vote for McCarthy, but he voted present. And that's what led into all this chaos. I am still 100% certain, and no one is going to convince me otherwise, that Matt Gates in that moment thought he was giving 
the speaker's gavel to McCarthy. I think he thought that he only had to vote present in order to give it to him. There was there were others in that five who had told McCarthy they would vote present, but then they didn't. They voted for someone else. So that turned the math so that Matt Gates had to vote for McCarthy, but Matt Gates cannot do math. Or well, he he doesn't have to do math, but he should have some staffers who are doing the math. There's no way he knew what was going on. <laughs> I'm like sure of it. And also, after all this chaos, uh, uh, Matt Gates moves to adjourn until Monday because it's like 11:30 on Friday, um, and. They're having a yay-nay vote. They're counting the votes. And then some mysterious thing happens. No one I've seen yet has reported what it was or knows what it was. But suddenly, Matt Gates turns around and decides to vote nay on adjournment. And then they didn't adjourn. And then they had the 15th vote. So that only feeds my theory. Like, I think the argument when McCarthy came up the aisle and was yelling, I think it was like, you said you were going to vote for me. And he's like, we agreed I'd vote present. Like, I think that is exactly what they said. Okay, so we've gone through the GOP side of the spectacle and performance art. Their kind of idiocy and dumbness and all they can do is perform and so they're going to use any opportunity to do it even if that means they're not even sworn in (laughs) um can we talk about some of the other things just in terms of the tv world of it because i heard that it was like people were like watching c-span like fucking eating popcorn like it was the greatest thing no it was very boring what? No. It, oh, I'm flipping it. Admittedly, I'm flipping it. So see, the, the major thing was, is that uh, there are rules, right, usually in the House um, by the dominant party. And overwhelmingly, they limit the camera angles that you are allowed to have in the House. Um, this goes all the way back to when C-SPAN was created, uh, going to like Tip O'Neill, et cetera, who was like, well, we don't want to have people catch members at like awkward moments, you know, when they're, I guess, digging for boogers or whatever so let's let's let them have a level of privacy and i was like level of privacy in the people's house like what the anyway the point is is that because there were no rules yet that did make this process quite chaotic (laughs) uh, created opportunities for c-span to put their cameras wherever they wanted which meant that we got that we otherwise would not have captured so like that um that Matt Gates moment, the, the confrontation between Gates and McCarthy was captured. The moment with um, Rogers was captured. Katie Porter, who was sitting down um, reading a, a book, unfortunately by a terrible person, but it has a phenomenal title, uh, which is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, uh, which she perfectly matched with her, her dress that day, allowing her bright God, orange love her. To sit right in the middle of all of these navy blues and, and dark colors. She's so good. And uh, the moment that very early in, in the process uh, when Democrats uh, were, were being asked, you know, um, are you going to, are you going to help McCarthy from Paul Gosar to AOC, who was sitting there uh, and Matt Gates and uh, Paul Gosar asked uh, basically at some point whether or not the Democrats were uh, uh, looking like they were going to bend and help McCarthy out. 
Uh, and she told them no. We Yeah, we didn't know that at the time, right? That was the fun thing about the whole C-SPAN cameras being able to go wherever they wanted was like we were, yeah, watching in between the votes as the members are kind of milling around or the members elect, I should say, were milling about and you see things like AOC talking to Paul Gosar and then on Twitter, everyone's posting a picture like, what could they be talking about? Like, What deal could they possibly be making or conversation could they be having? I did, I did appreciate the return of bad lip reading. <laughs> I used to love those videos and they're, yeah. they're back for those little intimate moments. I also think it's really interesting that it's all of AOC because the Republicans are all obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. Like she's the one that they're going to go to. Like she's not the one who's going to bend. Like I don't think so. No, but I think she was working the room. I think she was getting out there deliberately because like Caitlin was saying, they wanted to, the Republicans wanted to know if any Democrats were going to bend or make some kind of deal with McCarthy. And I think McCarthy was bluffing on that, was trying to tell them, you might as well vote for me because the Democrats are going to come to my side or something like that. And so she was out there making sure they knew that that was not going to happen. Wow. Okay. So we have Katie Porter doing her performance. We have AOC working the room. And we have a very united Democratic Party. So can we, can I hear about that? Because they just voted for Hakeem. At some point, I'm like, why does McCarthy just have some of his members threaten to vote for Hakeem Jeffrey? Like, do something. I don't know. Like, Right. How do you know not to manipulate, like manipulate some people? God. Yeah. I mean, it would be a bluff. Obviously. Yes, of course. But there, there is a way where like there was this faint, vague hope that like maybe there's some reasonable Republicans. You only need like five of them or six of them to be to come over to the Democrats and be like, hey, we, let's let's have like a shared House leadership. But like that can't happen because primaries exist. There's Republican right. primaries. So right. no one's no one can do that. But yeah, it, it was it was a great contrast to what you were seeing from the Republicans. The Democrats were just on point, on message, totally unified. One of the things that uh, was really striking was that um they they kept the same people for a while doing the nominating. And that meant that each time they would come up with a nomination speech, uh they would tackle a different issue. You know, one was abortion rights, uh, one was voting rights, one was, uh, you know, um, crime and safety. You know, they, they, they allowed basically Democrats to make their pitch to the people, realizing that if they were going to get a stage, they could at least demonstrate two things. One, that Democrats were ready to govern. And two, that they had the opportunity to make a direct pitch to the American people about what actual, actually would happen with democratic leadership. And so you got this in contrast to the McCarthy group, which is chaotic, but also a lot of those speeches that they made on McCarthy's side were completely untethered from reality and and any kind of concerns that regular people have or anything that was damaging to them in the midterms. Instead of talking about like why this red wave didn't happen and trying to pivot to something that they think they could use to consolidate, they just went the totally opposite direction. They were talking about fentanyl every day, all day. And I was like, what is happening? Um, whereas Democrats really were very thoughtful about how they used it. And when they did switch, they made sure to allow that person to have their own cadence and have their own space. Uh, they kept it mostly among leadership, but they did 
farm it out occasionally to other members. And uh, I think it was really effective. Like they really thought about what they were going to do as long as Kevin McCarthy was <laughs> a fucking mess. I have to say one of my favorite things was watching Hakeem Jeffries while people were giving their nominating speeches, nominating him, he's sitting right next to the person. He's right there looking at them. And he has this like perfect balance of, you know, you, you, you have to look appreciative for the praise, but you can't look too modest. You have to look like you deserve the praise, but like you're not arrogant about it. Like he, he just hit that, like, I am dignified and I accept this praise that is correct, but I'm still modest enough. Like I, I, I feel like it, it, he must have studied in front of the mirror at least a little bit before this, but he pulled it so off. Can we just briefly take a moment? Caitlin, how do we feel about Hakeem Jeffries as Democratic House minority leader? Because I don't know anything about him as a kind of public performer, as sort of like party figure. Do you have any insights you can? He was my assemblyman. <gasps> oh, my God. No okay. Like I was there at the beginning of his political career. Like I, I grew up. My dad was in the rooms when Hakeem Jeffries was making decisions about when he was going to run for things. Um, I remember the first person that he ran against. I remember him losing. I remember like all of that. Like it's so wild for me because I have two, two of my uh, former local representatives are now national figures. Uh, the first is Tish James, who as AG of New York, uh, which is wild. And the other one is now Huck and Jeffries. So from my perspective, wow. I have like this really long, it's like really kind of mildly insane to like to see uh, these people who uh, I know yeah. from the beginning of their careers. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, amazing. Like, as a kid, but they know me too. So that's kind of also insane. Okay. Um, so then with that insider knowledge, yeah. Tell me, what are we going to be looking for and seeing in the next three years with this guy? Uh, I will say this. Akeem Jeffries is very disciplined. The fact that he's gone this particular route um, is really impressive. Uh, he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to achieve. Uh, I really appreciate that he delivered his speech after uh, the McCarthy finally won and they were actually a house as a as minority leader, he delivered a scathing and brilliant uh, speech, and that was uh, done um, extempor like not extemporaneously, but like without notes. Uh, he did not use a teleprompter, as I'm aware, and uh, he's he's a very capable guy. The major thing that I am he's very lucky in the sense that he got like a perfect opportunity to consolidate what could have been a very splintered party as we shifted from one set of leadership to another. And he was given, gifted a kind of insane chaos from his opposition that allows him to consolidate his party and make sure they're all on the same page. You have progressives who are the largest caucus who really want more rule changes. And now he's going to have, he's going to basically inherit it if they take back the speakership. And they're going to say, like, we want more autonomy. And instead of having to fight the way McCarthy did, he can just basically say, OK, fine, we'll start with these as ground rules. And this is what I'm going to get back in return so we can stay disciplined and not end up the way the Republicans are. And that that obvious show of like, this is what it would look like for you to fight me. Let's not do that. Let's stay on point. I think he's got the charisma for that. And that's going to be really important.
everything that I read in the weird times of night when I wasn't doing work and I was just like, what's been happening? Is like, well, Kevin gave him everything they, well, Kevin just gave him everything. He just rolled over. And, and the rolling over seemed to happen so early that I was like, how much more rolling over can he do? So what did he do? What, what did he roll over and give? Uh, well, Kevin McCarthy more or less doesn't have a speakership. <laughs> he has, a, he's, <laughs> he's a puppet king. Um, he's like it's a ceremonial role <laughs> in one of those regimes <laughs> you know, a whole bunch of regents and nobody's running the show um because uh one of the first things that he did was a one member motion to vacate now this is an old rule that's existed for a long time it was removed by nancy pelosi uh, there has been a consolidation of power in leadership for a long time however Kevin McCarthy, as we can clearly see, does not have the discipline in his caucus for that person not to press the big ass red button on the console that resets the speakership and forces that no confidence vote. So basically one member can vote to uh, call up a no confidence vote and force a, a, another vote over who gets to be speaker. And basically at any moment, one of the people that he basically had to concede to can do that just for funsies, I guess. But wait a second. Aren't the other Republicans pissed at these people? Aren't they like, hey, loonbags, can you get your shit together? Like, aren't there going to be even intra-party consequences for some of these nut jobs? Oh, is that too much to ask? Is that already too much to ask? Jesus, God. They're obviously people are pissed. I mean, you could see it in their reactions, especially after Matt Gates sunk that 14th vote. <laughs> Tempers ran high. But um, do they have the ability to do anything about it? Do they have any influence on these members? Like, if you're, if you are a Trumpist in the truest sense, if you're just in it for yourself, then what, what do you give a shit about what other members of Congress think? It's all about being in the moment and getting the attention. I don't, you, there's no reasoning with people like that. There's no influencing them. Some people just want to watch the world burn. No, um, right. I mean, but that's, they are the Joker caucus in that sense. Um, <laughs> because I would say that, well, several things. If they could have been negotiated with, they would have been negotiated with before you got here. The next thing is, is that there's no pro-McCarthy caucus. And the lack of a pro-McCarthy caucus prevents Kevin from having a strong base where he's like, you, no matter what happens, no one's going to switch sides for you. Because the moment he pisses somebody in his side, his side, that McCarthy group that agreed, like, okay, we don't have anyone else. Like, you're, you're not going to give anyone else the votes. No one else has the votes. We're going to go with Kevin. Why are you guys holding out? That group is doing it at convenience. The moment he pisses one of those people off, they are going to see an advantage in flipping a bunch of other votes to create a no confidence vote and force them to go back through and create further concessions. And that could happen on any small issue and any kind of vote on any kind of legislation that that member wants to forward that the Freedom Caucus does or does not care about. And they can grab it and they can start running these this whole nonsense again. We could go through the whole goddamn thing again. Okay, so then what else was conceded? Another concession was um, reportedly he's giving 
three seats on the Rules Committee to Freedom Caucus members. The Rules Committee basically decides what legislation is going to get to the floor, what amendments are going to go into legislation. They have like a lot of power in the House. And it's a 13-seat committee with nine majority seats, meaning there's nine Republicans right now. So if three of them are Freedom Caucus members, then that means there are six what we can call like pro-McCarthy, to whatever extent anyone's pro-McCarthy, but like friendly to McCarthy members. That means the majority of the Rules Committee are not friendly to McCarthy. They're either Freedom Caucus or Democrats. That's going to make it difficult to get anything through the Rules Committee. Uh, I, I think normally, from what I understand, the Speaker controls the Rules Committee. Like That's the source of the Speaker's power to a large extent in the House, is they, they, they populate the Rules Committee with loyalists to them. And at best, McCarthy can have six loyalists on this 13-member committee. Wow. So that's going to be a disaster. So just nothing's getting done in the next two years. I it's mean, just... the speaker vote is kind of like a proxy for so many other things that are going to be, I, I said multiple times during the process, like, this is the easiest vote Kevin McCarthy has. <laughs> this, it is. Right? It's usually done by rote. It's not usually a question. Um, it's the easiest part of being speaker is usually whipping your caucus to agree that there needs to be a leader. Uh, because there has to be, because the House didn't exist until they agreed to a speaker vote. You basically have two things you can do when you enter Congress, which is vote for speaker or adjourn. And you can't do anything else, no committee assignments, no intelligence, nothing until that speaker vote is resolved. So this is usually the easiest thing to resolve because everybody wants to go do the shit that they were hired to do, but not this well, time. Not and everybody. That is just how it's going to roll through every more difficult thing. The appropriations, the amendments, the debt ceiling, which is the big honking thing in the, the discretionary spending. I'm going to let uh, Rebecca go through more of those details. But like, yeah, it's I mean, the gist of it is a, a lot of these um, never Kevins, <laughs> the these holdouts who did capitulate, did so for things like we won't raise the debt ceiling without also cutting spending. We're going to cap discretionary spending at 2022 levels. In other words, like no increases in government spending, which is preposterous. Um, appropriations bills, bills that involve spending. Usually they just pass like an omnibus bill. But Kevin McCarthy has promised that they will do like 13 or 14 separate appropriations bills for each different type of appropriation. Um, I mean, the people who want these things want it for their various reasons, because like to the extent that they have any kind of ideology or agenda, it's like they want to they want to starve government. They want austerity. They want to starve government and make it not exist. And that's how you do that. It's all through spending and appropriations. Um, also, they want more power for the regular members, the new members, like Caitlin said, power has been really concentrated in House leadership. So there's things like uh, members can add amendments to bills from the floor. Usually that could only be done in committee or previously that could only be done in committee, stuff like that. I'm sure that there are plenty of 
plum committee assignments and subcommittee chairmanships and things like that, that McCarthy promised certain members, but it's not exactly clear who got promised what at this point. Um, Caitlin, maybe you know this, but I haven't seen anything. I know one of the demands that the insurgents, if you will, uh, were making was uh, that they wanted to do away with proxy voting, which is being able to cast a vote remotely. And I had read that McCarthy was willing to cave on that, but I never found out if that was part of the final quote unquote framework that they agreed on. There's nothing he's not willing to cave on. Is there anything he wasn't willing to cave on? Well, they also there was also a lot of talk about either completely doing away with or gutting the health house ethics committee, which is a wild demand. Like, I won't vote for you for speaker unless you get rid of the ethics committee. Like, wow. Surprising that George Santos wasn't a holdout when you think about it. Right. He could have leveraged that. Maya, back to your point about how nothing's going to get done. That is not entirely true. Because one of the promises Kevin has made is uh, to form an investigative committee to probe the weaponization of the federal government. Oh, wow. The one thing that they can do that doesn't require passing any legislation, it doesn't require them to get all of the Republicans together. The one thing they can do is investigations. And boy, are they gonna. Oh, man. Okay. So, so then going forward. Am I going to have to see Jim Jordan's face a lot in the next two? Is this what I'm hearing? Just bullshit investigations like like Benghazi committees just times 300,000 where people who were just trying to do their fucking job have to get shouted out by shitty white men? Is this the next two years? Is this is this what we're looking at? I just I just want to hug Anthony Fauci because he is not going to have fun the next two years. They're going to investigate Fauci. They're talking about investigating the January 6th committee. I mean, what a great opportunity to get some of the three bajillion like pounds of evidence that they got back out into the public, man. I mean, I'm trying to picture what a January 6th committee investigation would look like. I think the major problem is, is that right now, I believe they're trying to uh, prevent the uh, January 6th materials from going to the National Archives, which would then make them more publicly available. And they're trying to keep them inside the house and then basically destroy them um, to prevent exactly that thing. So what they're going to do is they're going to do more show trials with no ability for people to access the actual information. I don't know if they can close down what's already been released, like it's already released. Um, But the major thing is like, there's a lot more we haven't seen and that could be part of a broader set of investigations. And like the big question is, are are people inside the Justice Department going to get a move on (laughs) walking? (laughs) Think about it, like there are, something like eight to 10 members who are currently serving who asked before, during, or after the insurrection for pardons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that happens, like there are people who are aware of the interactions in the text messages of many of the people who have already been charged, etc., with members of Congress. Does the Justice Department and Jack Smith go 
ahead and try to knock out members of McCarthy's caucus who might be the people who would be the most problematic. Like if I were a Game of Thrones kind of American politics person, I would be doing that kind of energy if I were Jack Smith being like, okay, you're gonna come for me? Let's come for you first. I'm so sorry. Like, look at this. We're not in the Mexican standoff. You're already dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I also feel like at this point, there could be so many just kind of Pentagon paper releases of things. It's gonna go somewhere. It's gonna go, they can try to put a lid on it, but... I guess one of the questions that we talked about landing on. So they're going to they're going to go through all of the Republicans greatest hits. We have show trials, we have debt ceiling, uh maybe there's some government shutdown, we have pointless investigations so they can perform like they're doing a thing. Okay, none of this is new. How did we get here? Well, it's been a long road. I mean, I think, Caitlin, you have a handle on the history of this. This type of brinksmanship and far-right House members sort of holding everything hostage for their particular agenda, that's that's kind of been around for a while. Yeah, I think you kind of got to go back if you want to go to the modern origins of this. You got to go back to Gingrich because that was the first time Republicans actually had a significant amount of power in the House other than being a a very active uh, opposition to the Democrats. I mean, they hadn't had Congress in like 40 years. And then um, you finally have the House and immediately it's through this kind of, first of all, this nationalization of political issues. So you, you take an, uh, you get rid of local issues, you decimate the ability for it to be about what you're going to do for your district, you make it about what they're going to do to serve the broader agenda, make that agenda extreme, do make it a do or die among Republican voters, like they're either with us or against us. And as you continue doing that cycle after cycle, you create a, a bed of extremism. And then, you know, you get into the late GOP House after the Clinton years, et cetera, and you've got Haster, you've got DeLay, who are pure power players on like House of Cards style, just all, all stick, no carrot, no mercy. And they basically carve the Republican caucus into line and then you know, that, that leads to massive losses in 2006 and 2008 back to back as aligning with the Bush agenda and nationalizing that politics ends up hurting all of these Republican members who can now no longer talk about what they've been doing for their district. They can only talk about what the president has been doing and they're stuck carrying this albatross and Obama sweeps in, Democrats sweep in on the basis of that and then you get the backlash, the racialized backlash, the, the, the Tea Party, and most importantly, in a redistricting year. And it's 2010, he loses a thousand state house seats, Obama does, and it allows Republicans to carve up the country in this incredibly hostile way to literally any kind of moderation. And as that happens, you see a new branch of crazy emerge out of these groups. Not just the racism that made it possible, but the fact that they are now insulated from consequence. They've picked their voters and now they don't have to worry except to their right. And each cycle, it gets a little bit worse as they look to their right and realize they don't have any room. So they have to run as far right as they can 
it's been losing them races since 2010. Yeah. Since 2010, Senate candidates in particular, but like these, this is where the, the lack of red wave came from. It was the fact that they were all packed and now it's just a cycle of crazy and who knows what's going to happen. They can't break it without losing power. Right. Here's the thing though, is that I feel like they can't break it. They've so anchored the idea of power as not negotiating. I mean, we've talked about this, like with the whole cuck thing and cuck conservative, like anybody who seems like they might at all be negotiating with a Democrat is already lost. And so it's the performance of power, but they are actually losing power by doing it. And and you wonder, that thing you're saying about the nationalization of politics is so profound because then it causes them to constantly be looking for these hot button red meat culture war issues that then lose their power. I remember I was um, in Harlan County, Kentucky, uh, interviewing for this job to go do this oral history play. And this one woman was saying that she didn't approve of a gay marriage because what it was going to do to her health insurance premiums. I mean, it was clearly such a bizarre talking point that had nothing to do with anything. If you talk to her now and you've been like, oh, there's been gay marriage for 20 years, what do you think? She'd be like, oh yeah, it was fine. But it's like in that moment, that was the crazy explosive issue. And now it's like, whatever, I don't know, trans girls in sports, like whatever the fuck it is. But those things have diminishing returns. Yeah, I've been saying since around 20 time, the Republicans gerrymandered themselves into a corner. They have to cling to those cultural issues and those the white grievance and whatever other grievance, um, because that's the meat, the red meat for the hard right who decide primaries. So if you're in a safe Republican district, then your your focus is on that primary. Or if you're in any fucking district, You've got to get through the primary first before you can run in the general. And they are selecting people in primaries who can't win in generals. And it's chipping away and chipping away at, like you said, Maya, their real actual governing power. I mean, if you look at the debt ceiling crisis of 2011, um, that was like the same thing. It was like the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party, whatever they were calling themselves at the time, using the debt ceiling as some kind of basically as a hostage they're holding the country hostage just like these people were holding the house hostage we're not going to vote for kevin mccarthy till we get everything we want none of you can start your jobs till we get everything we want and that was that it was we're going to default the u.s is going to default on its debt and it's going to be an economic catastrophe unless we get what we want ultimately though that ended with a deal with obama like some kind of deal was struck. I do not recall the details of it now, but it was acceptable enough that the Republican House of Representatives were willing to pass it. It did the job. It got everyone through that. And then in 2013, they did shut down the government over the budget. You know, there was no agreement on the budget. And after like two weeks of government shutdown, the Republicans just caved. They realized they weren't winning the PR battle and this wasn't going to pan out the same as the debt ceiling crisis had panned out for them. But my question is, has something changed? Would a deal like what happened in 2011 even be possible with this Congress? No. (laughs) John Boehner was out of a, a relatively normal congressional politics, right? He came up in the the 80s or 90s 
and he was very stable. And uh, admittedly, yes, it was during Gingrich, et cetera, but there was an un understanding that the government shutdown that Gingrich initiated was incredibly unpopular, the first of its type, extremely explosive, extremely disliked. People expected their government to function and they were very mad at Republicans for fucking that up. And by the time you get to Obama, it's like, whatever at whatever it takes whatever it takes to stop them and the the rhetoric has gotten worse and worse um i mean we've already seen there's a whole ass insurrection like they they really yeah. are at this point like there is no such thing as a legitimate government a legitimate election a le legitimate function that favors democrats any of those things is illegitimate so once you get to that place I don't know if there is a place to negotiate. Like, what are you gonna, like, basically it's kind of like saying like, can I eat half your baby? Or like, right. <laughs> But I feel like in terms of even their crazy ass fan base, even, in, even with the, the crazy crazies, at a certain point, even their crazy voters are gonna get tired. I, I feel like they've got to, there's gotta be a way that people are gonna be like, yeah, I'm done. I want help. I I just I think that's the question is like are we headed for it's this is a question we started with. Like the civil war? I don't know. These people don't seem very organized enough to like have a civil I don't know. To me there's no bottom. And part of that is because if you look at American history, the American South in the run up to the civil war, which is the last time we had speaker votes this long the factionalism of that was these people understood that slavery was killing their economy. They understood that they, that, that paid labor in the North was actually winning. They understood that they didn't have the infrastructure. They understood and they didn't care. It was a level of need, just psychological need to win, to not give up anything that they had not compromise in any way because they, the mo they realized that the moment they compromised, they would break. They were so brittle that they knew that anything short of full-blown war, they weren't gonna win. And that zero-sum thinking, like it was completely insane. Like if you sat down with somebody and was like, okay, just to be clear, you're gonna take on somebody who's got like 10 times your shit, like you, you literally cannot win this. And you also have a giant section, about a third of your, the people inside your nation who are enslaved and subversion. Like you, you would literally have equipped a 3 million spies inside your nation who would like to work against you. Have you lost your mind to think that you were going to win this conflict? And they did it anyway. And it destroyed them completely. And that's why to some degree, they never finished reconstruction and they, they've never finished getting back. They've never met where the rest of the nation is because they were willing to destroy themselves before giving up. And I, I see the same energy, you know, like the black man got elected president and they did, they like, okay, well, let's all die now. Let's all yeah. die. If America's gonna yeah. create black presidents, we need to stop America. Caitlin, I so love having you on. Thank you. That was amazing. Where can listeners find you online? Is there anything that you are working on that they should check out? Gothamgirlblue.com now has all of my stuff. 
you can get to my Patreon from there. You can get from everything. I have not yet set it up, but I do have merch now. I would rather Ooh. be wrong. Is is now a whole mug that you can get. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're that kind of snarky person, I'm totally. I think going our on listeners she are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Check out GothamGirlBlue.com. Follow Caitlin on all the socials. Buy her mugs. Buy her merch. And also reach out to us and tell us your thoughts. What do you see happening in this shit show of a Congress? Were there C-SPAN moments that we didn't bring up that you caught that we didn't? We'll totally be up for hearing about it. You can share all of your thoughts about those things with us uh, by emailing us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us as at saucepodcast on a bunch of the social media sites. We're around. Uh, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash saucepodcast and come chat with us on our Discord channel, The Sauce Speakeasy. You can find me at Maya Garantz Anywhere you are looking for Maya Garances. And you can find me, Rebecca, as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. All right, friends. Adios, amibas. Adios.